now to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We're going to read verses 21 through 34 this morning. And while you turn there, I'll, I'll remind you, a couple weeks back we were in, our, in this study in Mark, and we were looking at the parable of the sower and the soils. And in that chapter, in fact, this whole chapter is kind of a, a snapshot. It doesn't tell us everything that Jesus ever taught, but Mark's just simply trying to say, this is what Jesus' teaching was like. And he gives these parables as a way to connect with these broader crowds. You might say he's not telling them everything. He's telling them precisely what they can bear in the moment. Now he turns to his disciples and he always gives them much more clarity so that it might kindle their faith as they're moving ahead to his death on the cross so that they will be ready when it comes and remember that he's explained these things. One of the things I said a couple of weeks back is that parables have the capacity to conceal even as they reveal. And so what he says here are parables pertaining to the kingdom of God. We're going to pick up at chapter 4, verse 21. And I'll remind you, this is God's word. Jesus said to them, as a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parables shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, even as we read these particular parables, we recognize that, that things are hidden unless you bring them to light. And so we ask for the ministry and the help of your Holy Spirit so that even as we study your word, you would, you would give light, that you would cause your word to go forth and to accomplish its purpose. Please, Lord, give us ears to hear what you would say to your people. And I ask you again to be willing to use a, an ordinary sinful crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. It was actually kind of a common misunderstanding in the days of Jesus' ministry, and that is that most Jews who had been trained under the teachings of the Old Testament expected that when it was time for God's kingdom to come, that it would come suddenly. That it would come all at once and by force with such power that everybody on the whole earth would see it instantaneously. And so they expected that when the Messiah, the Christ, was revealed, 
that God's people would immediately be vindicated, that they would have rescue from all of their enemies, that they would immediately have all of the promises on the Old Testament fall upon them immediately. Put yourself in the place of the 12 disciples who are sitting around Jesus as he speaks. And remember that background. They're watching him. And they're wondering, perhaps, what's going on. Like, if this is really the Messiah, then where's the kingdom? It isn't happening immediately. I mean, for sure, they've seen some remarkable things. They've heard remarkable claims. And yet, the disciples, better than anyone else, have also heard the things that his family says. Well, we think he's not totally doing well. Maybe he's out of his mind. Those who teach and taught in Jesus' day would say, well, no, Jesus is actually in league with the devil. And all of those words, all of those, those come in conflict with their expectations. I wonder how many of us are not more like those first disciples than we might realize. Here's what I mean. Do the, do the ways of God ever confuse you? Is your faith ever shaken when what God does is different from what you expected God to do? Are you ever bothered to the point of doubt when what you're trying to do in the name of the Lord is met with constant resistance? When it comes to the kingdom, what did you expect? I mean, for sure he's coming back. There is more to come. But right now, did you expect this whole thing to, to move more quickly, to be more obvious so that everybody would see it and know it, so that you could recognize, oh yeah, that's my God, in a culture that, that values a big splash? Would you be disappointed if God builds his kingdom with something more like ripples across the water? in ordinary ways, in ways that, that the world doesn't measure and cannot see at this moment. Well, make no mistake, says Jesus, God does the building of his kingdom, and it is always significant, and there is always more going on than meets the eye. And so here's three parables that teach us that the kingdom of God utterly defies human expectations, which is why with a spiritual eye and a tender heart, you must treasure the ordinary. Picture this, please. Jesus could have simply said, the kingdom of God is this, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he paints a picture. He says the kingdom of God is like, and so here he explains the kingdom by talking about the king's light and the king's power and the king's purpose, and we'll start with the king's light of course, if you've been with us before, you recognize that parables can be stories that teach lessons. That what we, that's what we saw with the parable of the sower and the soils. The lesson was you and I must receive God's word with a tender heart. But Jesus also uses word pictures and even wise sayings as, as parables. And that's what he does here, verse 21. Jesus doesn't tell us a story about a lamp. Instead, he asks a simple question. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. Of course, the answer would be so obvious, his original hearers would have probably smirked or laughed at the absurdity. Yeah, sure, everybody knows what you do with a lamp. You don't bring a lamp into a house to hide it. A lamp is, is, is brought to make hidden things more easily seen. One of the details that you'll notice if you ever read through the Gospels is that sometimes Jesus will use 
the same illustration to explain several different things. In fact, he often repeats himself, and sometimes he uses one illustration to make a different point later. This is one of those. Because so many of us have heard this particular illustration from Matthew chapter 5 or Luke chapter 11, where Jesus uses this same word picture to say that God's people, as children of light, should let their light show, show, easy for me to say, should let their light so shine before men that those who see it would recognize it, which is why you and I grew up in little Sunday schools and we said, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I have a great voice. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's making a different point. That's a good point. It's just not this one. In Luke chapter 8 and here in Mark chapter 4, Jesus uses this parable to say, God sent me into the world to be light, to bring light, to make hidden things like hard hearts and hidden sins comes to light, come to light. That's why I'm here. Jesus says this parable is, is about me. Can't tell it in your text perhaps, but in the original language, Mark actually places a, a definite article before the word lamp. It's not a lamp. Jesus says it is the lamp. And then more than that, you you know that lamps are always brought into a room. That's why most of your English translators say it's brought. But Jesus actually says something different. He says, does the lamp come for the purpose of being placed under the couch? Does it not come for the purpose of being placed on a lampstand? Doesn't that make sense? when you realize what his disciples needed to hear in the moment. They're looking around and they're thinking, what's happening? Like This isn't moving very fast. Jesus, we could make this go a lot better. It could be bigger. It could be more noticeable. And so Jesus says, it's okay. You can relax. God brings forth the kingdom in the coming of his own son, but it's not to conceal it forever. The lamp comes. The light comes to make apparent those things which you could never see in darkness. That's why I'm here. And so he's, he's in a sense saying, sure, it's veiled now. It will not be veiled forever. That's why he says, verse 22, nothing is hidden except to, make, to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Some of you hear that and you go, well, that's a cosmic truth and it's a terrifying one. Maybe I should panic. Everything's going to come to light. Yes, but the context tells us that that's not how Jesus means it. He doesn't mean to send everybody into panic. He says everything about God and me, Jesus, the Son, and the kingdom, which is now veiled, will one day be made clear from where they sit. Many things don't make sense. But in fact, on the other side, at, at the sermon at Pentecost, on the other side of the, of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, it all begins to make sense. The hidden things which didn't make sense become clear. But you should know also that this is true from where you sit. Even now, in between Jesus' first and second coming, there are things that happen in this world, in God's kingdom, that utterly make no sense to you. 
And this is actually reassurance for disciples who are struggling with unmet expectations. It's reassurance for Christians who would honestly say, you know, sometimes the Lord and his ways, they really do confuse me. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why he's doing it this way. I don't know why there's so much opposition. I don't know why God doesn't do more in bigger, more obvious ways. And some of you may be asking, Lord, will I ever understand? Would it help you to hear Jesus say in Mark chapter 4, that's okay. You can relax. The king's light is coming. And this is a bigger larger, longer story than you can ever possibly comprehend. But make no mistake, the light comes. And those 12 who had no idea in the moment the things that are utterly clear to you and I today about resurrection, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, well, those 11 of the 12 have gone before us now. And you and I have no concept of what they could tell us about reassurance and comfort and clarity, and it's all going to be well. How do you respond to the message of light? You listen. Which is why in verse 23, he uses that now repeated phrase, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then Jesus explains that there's a correlation between how a person listens and makes use of God's word as it's sent forth from Jesus here and now, and how it will benefit him fully. And finally, when that kingdom is revealed, look at 24. He says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. There's been a lot of pastors, even scholars, who've looked at this and said, oh, that's classic Jesus, right? It's just an upside-down kingdom. And it is that. But there's something more here. This lamp image is meant to draw us not only to faith, but also to diligence. In a sense, it's precisely because God makes his kingdom increasingly clear that when you and I hear and think through his word right now, we're looking ahead and looking forward to, with faith, a greater revelation. It's actually going to make so much more sense when we make use of the things for which he gives us now. And then on the day of judgment, God's kingdom will be clear. And you will receive even more. There's a greater salvation coming than what you can possibly grasp. But then he flips the coin. He says, on the other hand, the one who with hard heart would refuse God's word now will lose even those words that came through one ear and out the other. Because he would ignore them today, then he will have those very words taken away on the day of judgment. What does this mean for you? Well, at a very practical level, are you making use of the grace and the knowledge that God has already given you? Are you embracing God's word? If you are, then it has a growing and a a softening effect on your heart. As you implement what he teaches you, you begin to grow more and more. Whereas if you are one who is running from his word, and it has a distancing and hardening effect on your heart. 
Do you live in light of the knowledge which the Lord has already given you right now? Do you humbly use the scriptures and sit beneath those words which God has provided? Do you avail yourself of the listening and compassionate ear of a father? This is a profound mystery. Who would bend his ear down and listen to you cry out? Sinclair Ferguson says, if you fail to grasp the mystery of God's kingdom now and do not respond to it now, You may be increasingly alienated from it in the future, but if you do respond to it, you will grow in your understanding and appreciation and increasingly experience its blessings. That's actually great comfort, isn't it? Because in your daily walk, you feel like you're actually plodding along and you're going, I don't even know if I'm making any progress. Jesus says, yeah, keep going. And there's going to be a day when your eyes are open and you're going to go, oh, so helpful. You must treasure the ordinary. As Jesus paints this portrait of God's kingdom, he starts by explaining the king's light, and then secondly, he moves to the king's power. It starts in verse 26. He says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. There's times when you and I will only remember something in the moment that we actually need to remember it. In the moment that it becomes relevant to the situation in which we face. And I say that because Mark is the only gospel writer who records this parable for us. And it is similar in some ways to the parable of the sower with its emphasis on on responsive hearts. But here, you notice the, the emphasis is on the power of the kingdom to overcome opposition and to establish itself. See, when Jesus first spoke these words to his disciples, to them it looked like nothing's really happening. There's opposition to this kingdom that Jesus keeps talking about really doesn't show any signs of much else happening. So then why does Mark think that it's important to record this particular parable? Because certainly it's the Holy Spirit's inspiration. But I wonder if there are not people who are sitting in the church of Rome to whom Mark writes who are suffering under the persecution of Nero. You think anybody felt confused in the church when God's ways and his kingdom came up against the kingdoms of men? Was anybody's faith shaken as family members and church members were carried out to their death? Did anyone struggle with doubt when living the name of Jesus was met with constant resistance? Jesus says you could rest assured. God's kingdom grows even when you don't understand it. You notice that all the power in this illustration is actually found in the seeds. Seeds, which are simply the word of God going forth. What's the farmer doing? After the seed is thrown out, verse 27, he sleeps, he rises night and day. Seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. In the same way, the farmer has no clue how the seed grows. He just knows it grows. Likewise, you and I, looking from here, have no idea how God would grow his kingdom, but it simply grows, and somehow a mysterious force unleashes 
through these ordinary means, this single seed becomes the kingdom of God. That's the king's power, verse 28. The king, excuse me, the earth produces by itself. The original language is automate, from which we get the word automatically. Jesus says to his disciples, listen, I'm sowing the seeds of God's word. After me, you will sow the seeds of God's word. After you, others will sow the seeds of God's word. But make no mistake, it's not you who brings about God's kingdom. All of the germinating power of this kingdom comes from the seeds, which is the word. Martin Luther, reflecting on this principle, reflecting on what he saw in what became known as the Protestant Reformation. Looks back on it. He calls himself a maggot. He always is graphic with his own words. He says, I was a maggot. And then he says, I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept and drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such great losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. And here's the farmer. And he does nothing. In the gospel, God's power is profoundly displayed, which is why Romans chapter 1 calls it the power of God unto salvation. Not only does it go and change individual hearts and lives, but the very essence of the kingdom is, as one pastor said, it's simply the adding of people to the ranks of God's people. That's it. And it builds through the seed, which is God's word Proclaimed, There was a moment in church history between the, the mid and late 1800s and early 1900s in, in Western Europe, in many parts of the United States, where mainline churches began to be frustrated with the lack of, of impact that they were having in their communities. They saw it as, as kind of like a slow growth of the kingdom. It's not producing the kind of societal changes that we think it should cha- should. Address. So what are we going to do about drunkenness and poverty and hunger, the neglect of children? And so they decided to answer the hard question with the wrong answer. They tossed aside the very point of this parable, which is God's way of building his kingdom. They should have doubled down on preaching Christ. They should have helped God's people connect the dots that God's kingdom has import, not just in the life to come, but in this life itself. But instead, what they said is, let's devise some strategies. Many denominations in those seasons pivoted away from casting seeds. They pivoted away from preaching the gospel. And so they began to teach moralistic lessons on self-improvement. And their financial resources were dumped into social reforms. Now, let me be very clear. This is a super broad brush. But it is the reason that many of those denominations have been hemorrhaging for decades. It's why many of those denominations are dead and dying. It's why you walk through many cities in this country, many towns. And the biggest, most prominent, most beautiful buildings in the center of the town are hollow. They're empty shells. 
we should never presume that we are building God's kingdom or that we do the work of God's kingdom. One New Testament scholar looking through the New Testament decided to do a study on the verbs that are attached to the kingdom in the New Testament. And here's what he found. He says in the New Testament, it's always supernatural. The kingdom can draw near to people. It can come, it can arrive, it can appear, it can be active. God can give the kingdom to people, but they do not give the kingdom to one another. Men and women can enter the kingdom, but they're never said to erect it or to build it. People can receive the kingdom, inherit it, possess it, but they're never said to establish it. They can reject the kingdom. That is to refuse to enter it, but they cannot destroy it. They can look for it, pray for its coming, seek it, but they cannot bring it. Jesus says, know your place and trust the king's power. Jesus could not have stressed more clearly our irrelevance in comparison to the word of God. Not absolute irrelevance, comparative irrelevance. The farmer sleeps. The only two instruments in the hand of the farmer is God's word and your prayers. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Isaiah 55, God's word goes forth and it will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which God sends it. I suspect all of us need to know our place and trust the king's power to build his kingdom. It may not work in your timing. It may not look like you expect but you must treasure the ordinary. The king's light, the king's power will close with the king's purpose. It's there in verse 30. He said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You see, the king's purpose is to grow his kingdom from the inconsequential to the incomprehensible so that his ways would be utterly surprising to us And in our surprise, he receives glory. His disciples are looking around, will this kingdom ever come? And some of you may be saying that today. I mean, you believe in the promise that that Jesus will return, but it's way out there. And you expected more by now. Maybe you expected more personal change. Maybe you expected more change in the people that you love. Maybe you expected to not look around at the world and and go, where is God? When's he going to do something about all of this? Jesus says, why don't you think about the mustard seed? The smallest of seeds in Jesus' context becomes the largest of shrubs, the largest of plants, eight to ten feet in the places where he's teaching. And so he says, do you you notice the contrast when you compare the, the beginning with the end? You never would have seen it coming. And this applies at a personal level and it applies at a cosmic level. At a personal level, friends, you must not despise small beginnings. What seems insignificant to you right now, like a simple sermon, 
like making yourself get out of your house and come to worship, like deciding to be a part of a church family, the Bible sown in your heart and your prayers, those little small words that you utter and you wonder if the Lord even hears you. You just can't tell what the Lord is going to grow from that. In fact, life is full of small beginnings. Parents, you pick up your your child when he or she falls and you give to them comfort and tenderness. You have no idea that this baby is perhaps learning faith from that small gesture. You know God's like that. He is the one who picks me up. He's the one who holds me and cares for me tenderly. The most mundane and ordinary things that you do can teach your children personal responsibility, natural consequences for hard-hearted actions. You can teach them kindness to others. When they begin to learn that they are not the center of your family, it strikes them that they are also not the center of the universe. When you, with honesty, show them that you have sin, that you need Christ, you are in a very ordinary way pointing them to the fact that they need Christ as you need Christ. There's a thousand other ways to apply this mustard seed to your own personal life, but do not despise small beginnings. God can and will grow his kingdom in you as you embrace the ordinary means of grace, like his word, like prayer, like the sacraments, like fellowship with other believers. But this also applies on a cosmic level. It all started with a tree in the Garden of Eden. This tree which was there to picture an offer and a promise of eternal life. And in that garden, there is communion and there is fellowship with God. But then mankind sinned. And for some reason, it it seems as if the tree disappears from our view. And yet God never stops using this image of a tree throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it's full of passages that speak of a a tree of God's planting. And it's a metaphor of, of a mighty kingdom which he is predicting will come. Places like Psalm 104, Daniel 4, Ezekiel 17, and 31. And it's almost as if this tree that that nobody can see but God keeps talking about is going to be so grand that it's going to span the chasm between heaven and earth. As if God's going to plant something new and grow it into something mighty. And then comes Jesus who has no form that anyone should think he is special. But the Bible says Jesus is actually that mustard seed. That was the king's purpose. Through Jesus, God sows the seeds of his word. And Jesus says, my kingdom will come, my will will be done, even as I call sinners to come and rest in my branches and my shade, and I'm the vine and you're the branches and you'll find rest for your soul and you keep looking at Jesus and his disciples are looking going but where's the tree where's a tree big enough to span the chasm between heaven and earth surely those disciples looked around and said why do you keep calling this a kingdom God ultimately grows the new tree of life by planting the Christ on earth 
And he builds that kingdom not by making little mustard seed Jesus grow into a big wooden mustard bush, but by sending him to a big wooden cross so that in his death, Jesus is planted in the earth and from his resurrected body grows a kingdom from all those who would put their faith in Christ. Will this kingdom ever come? Yes, it's coming. Have faith, be patient, persevere, because the kingdom of God always defies expectations, which is why with a spiritual eye and a tender heart, you must treasure the ordinary. Let's pray.